Welcome, and thanks so much for braving the cold and coming out to join us this evening for our third installment of Golden Beer Talks. First of all, I'd like to give a thank you to the Windy Saddle for hosting our event once again. And second to that, I'd like to give a shout-out to the beer you're enjoying from Cannonball Creek, our local brewery for this month. All right, so for tonight, we thought we'd mix things up a little, just in case, for those of you who are repeat customers to the talks, that all we could talk about was food and drink. So tonight, we are going to aim for the stars, or at least aim for nearby planets. It is my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker tonight, Mr. Adam Pender. Adam received his bachelor's and master's degrees in aerospace engineering from Purdue University. He is currently a propulsion systems engineer for Lockheed Martin Space Systems. He is also, I just learned, a fairly new father. In addition to that, in addition to that, he is also a NASA ambassador to the public. And he is also concurrently in addition to his day job and all of that, working on his PhD through the University of Denver. So uh, clearly Adam's a bit of an underachiever, but, but despite that fact, he's managed to work um, on the propulsion systems for uh, numerous space missions, including uh, Juno and Phoenix and MAVEN and OSIRIS-REx, and probably most well-known, the Mars Science Laboratory, uh, better known as the... Uh, Mars rover, which, uh, thanks in part to Adam, is currently, as we speak, exploring the red planet. So with all that said, it is my pleasure to introduce to Adam, who's going to share his time with us, and also his unique insights into the exploration of space. Welcome, Mr. Adam Pender. Hi, everybody. Uh, first off, thank you all very much for coming out. This, uh, this crowd really gives me hope for the future. And uh, by the end of the talk here, no, I'm not kidding. Uh, by the end of the talk, you'll understand why. Um, as Carl mentioned, I've uh, been a propulsion engineer at Lockheed Martin. Uh, I'm now about eight and a half years into my tenure there, two of which were spent on site at JPL working the uh, Mars Science Laboratory Descent Stage or Sky Crane Propulsion System. I uh, did all sorts of stuff there. That was a, a tremendous experience, and uh, as you can imagine, quite exciting when we successfully landed there. Uh, Carl, one thing I didn't mention to you, but uh, in, in light of the community here, uh, at least a few of you guys probably will appreciate this. I race mountain bikes as well. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and, and, yeah, uh, photography as well. So uh, uh, kind of a, a diverse uh, set of interests that I have. But uh, today, obviously, we'll be talking about the thing I spend the most, uh, well, most of my time on, and that is, uh, is space. And really, the question comes up a lot. Why go to space? Why spend so much money on a space program? Can't we just stay here? We sent a dozen people to the moon. None of us were among them, I think. Um, I was actually fortunate enough one time to have dinner with Gene Cernan, the last man on the moon. Uh, fascinating gentleman. And uh, really kind of a, a humbling experience to, to be able to... Uh, talk to him, ask him some questions on, on his experiences, and get a bit of his perspective on humanity as a whole from that distant perspective where you can look up and see the entire world as a pale blue dot. That was uh, really something, and uh, something to keep in mind overall as, uh, as we all go around and, uh, and enjoy our time on the Earth here. So, really, why go to space? There's 
a whole slew of reasons that I'm sure many of you have heard some of them. Uh, Michael Griffin, former uh, administrator for NASA, put together a uh, position piece several years ago, maybe close to a decade ago, that, that really resonated with me. And uh, he mentioned that you can break those reasons down into what he called acceptable reasons and real reasons. Now, the acceptable reasons are those reasons that are measurable, quantifiable. They provide something of an immediate benefit. Right? On the other hand, those real reasons are the values-driven reasons, the reasons primarily driven by emotion and emotion of the entire civilization that is undertaking those ambitious goals. So first of all, before we get into the, the real reasons, let's talk a bit on what some of those acceptable, quantifiable reasons are. Right? Obviously, scientific discovery is something that I'm big on. I, I've pursued opportunities to work in space specifically in the NASA exploratory missions, although I've worked in several um, Department of Defense missions as well as a, a propulsion engineer. Uh, the ones that I really highlight on my resume are those things like... MSL, uh, GRAIL, the twin spacecraft that orbited the moon and developed a precision gravity map more precise than that for Earth uh, that helped us understand the evolution of the moon and, as an out extension of that, understand the development of Earth uh, and how it and the moon were, were originally formed. Uh, so that obviously is, is something quantifiable and immediate However, that's also something of a values-driven reason, and we'll get into that a bit more as well. There's economic benefit. Obviously, with space, there's several spin-offs. Now, some estimates have put the economic return for every dollar spent in space at $14. In other words, there's a 14x multiplier of money put into space that is a stimulus overall into the economy. Now, those estimates are, are all over the map and really depend on a, a lot of assumptions. So let's not focus on the 14 to 1, but rather let's focus on the generalities and, and broad kind of spin-offs, technology spin-offs. And a very abridged list of those might include GPS, of which I'm working on the third generation of GPS constellation right now which is going to be more precise, give us better GPS positioning even among urban environments, among heavily forested areas, uh, precision much better than before and of particular value to our, uh, our soldiers, uh, jam-resistant GPS so that in the event of a conflict, if an enemy were to attempt to jam those signals, we, uh, we still provide our soldiers the best, uh, the best signal that they can get. Weather satellites. These are lifesavers, literally. Knowing in advance what storms are doing and allowing us to give minutes warning for tornadoes up to days warning for hurricanes, understanding where those storms are going, what their impacts might be, allows people to get out of dodge. And so that's an immediate societal impact there. Wireless communications. These kinds of things, although they existed prior to the space program, were really refined as we started talking not between say, here in Boulder or here in Lookout Mountain, but rather here to the moon, we really had to sharpen the pencil a little bit on, on how we did those kinds of things. Uh, let's see. Climate control and environmental controls of manned spacecraft. 
really had to make some advances as far as compact energy efficiency uh, to make possible a small self-contained environment suitable for humans to live for days at a time. Solar power is an obvious one. That one wouldn't be around without the space program, without the need for untethered, self-generated power on orbit. We wouldn't have those installations now on Earth that are helping us develop some of these alternative energy sources. Um, of note, wind power is probably not a good spin-off example because there's no air in space. <laughs> However, there is an air and space museum, so, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then the fun stuff, like being able to watch BBC on your cable or satellite, uh, that's all enabled by those international communications uh, enabled by space. So there's obviously those and dozens or hundreds of others. Uh, national security, right? We've got things like missile defense. We have satellites that are looking constantly at our adversaries, looking for any, uh, any examples of infrared plumes that might indicate a missile launch so we can react and uh, respond as, as quickly as possible. Uh, reconnaissance, intelligence, things like spy satellites that help uh, identify what's going on. Uh, military technology, I mentioned the GPS application, but also military communications is a, an important application of space. And um, also, as far as national security goes, security from beyond Earth. Security knowing what our immediate Earth environment is as far as near-Earth objects. Asteroids that may have a chance of encountering Earth, potentially... Uh, uh, causing damage. And just a year ago in Russia, there was a huge asteroid. And when I say huge, I mean perhaps 10 meters in diameter that, upon hitting the atmosphere, exploded so violently that for hundreds of square miles, windows were shattered, dozens of injuries, huge, huge impact from something that's about the size of this room. But when we're talking about astronomical speeds, quite literally, encountering Earth at 30,000 miles an hour those small objects can do tremendous damage. Now, scale that up to an object perhaps six miles in diameter, and you've got something the size of the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs. I mean, global catastrophe. Being able to identify that early on and then respond to that using a number of potential technologies is really something that we as a species should take seriously, should make a priority. So like I mentioned, it bodes well for the future that you all are here as taxpayers. Hopefully uh, you guys are in favor of a space program for that immediate or potentially immediate benefit. <laughs> and you can spread that word out to uh, your friends who may not have, happen to be here tonight. Uh, so like I mentioned, those acceptable reasons, you can show those to be true, quantifiable, legitimate reasons for going to space. You spend X dollars, you get Y benefit. All right, so this is the stuff that looks good on a spreadsheet, so to speak. But it doesn't paint the whole picture of why we might go to space. So we get into some of the, quote, real reasons. And excuse me as I'm reading from my note cards, usually my format is more specific to a single mission discussion. I've done several at Lookout Mountain. Um, pertaining to individual missions, and I'm usually talking to PowerPoint slides. So uh, it's a bit of a different format for me and really a, a good opportunity for me to broaden a little bit my uh, uh, 
capability, we'll say, in, uh, in this regard. So uh, thank you guys for bearing with me. I should probably have started with that, but figured I'd give you guys a time to, uh, or an opportunity to hit the door before I continue. <laughs> so what are some of these real reasons why we might want to go to space? Well, we as humans are genetically uh, blessed, we'll say, with the imperative to be the best. We, throughout evolutionary time, are the products of those individuals in our past that outcompeted their peers, that are the winners of that whole natural selection process. And while we, at least in the United States here, don't typically face the same kinds of challenges that the cavemen did, uh, we still have that drive to achieve, to do the best that we can, and uh, essentially to win. Now, that drive is manifested right now in a lot of different ways. Uh, the professional sports is, is probably a really great example of that. That's, relatively speaking, a fairly healthy uh, opportunity for, for us to compete uh, via proxy, of course, because we're not all on uh, the Broncos. But it's a great example of our society's real motive or imperative to compete. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, that less healthy end, uh, war is globally a phenomenon of we're the best, no, we're the best, can't come to an agreement, we fight it out and see who's the best. And that, sadly, is a, a tragic example. Now, space, on the other hand, is an arena much like the Olympics where we internationally can compete and we, America, can show the world how much we excel at this technological feat that, that we uh, attempt, whether it's landing a car-sized rover on Mars or developing a GPS satellite that can tell you whether you're on this sidewalk or the sidewalk across the street, whatever. I mean, down to a centimeter, in, down to a millimeter in some cases in terms of relative movement. They've used GPS to measure tectonic movement at millimeters per year. Just incredible what they can do right now. So there's one reason, right? And like I mentioned, there is benefit, universal benefit to the Olympics. Similarly, there's universal benefit to space. We learn about Mars, and we don't keep it to ourselves. We share with the world these pictures that we've got from Gale Crater. We share with the world these images of global weather that we can help prevent whatever tropical island or whatever other nation from, uh, from falling uh, to a hurricane that could be uh, predicted ahead of time. So again, universal benefit while at the same time demonstrating that, yay us, we're the best. So with that competition, it's also an opportunity for partnership. And counteracting that effect of war, international collaboration between us and Russia, for example, with the International Space Station, this makes friends out of rivals. This provides a common bond that can help diffuse tensions elsewhere that may have otherwise led to war. And having those opportunities to work as a team with international teammates really helps build that global community, which, again, is, is so valuable for 
overall benefit of, uh, of the planet. All right, so there's one. Moving on, we talked about Mars Science Laboratory Curiosity. That name wasn't an accident. We have this curiosity about what's out there, right? The cavemen, what's over that hill? What's on the other side of those mountains? What's on the other side of that ocean? Well, Columbus thought it was India. He may have been wrong, but we still got something out of it. All right. I've been looking at this moon for years. What's up there? Let's go check it out. At the same time, it gives us an opportunity to show Russia that we're the best, right? <laughs> What's on that other planet? We see this little red spot up there. What's it look like on there? I see a star way out there. I wonder what's orbiting that star. I wonder what those planets have on them, right? As our technology advances, so do our horizons. So embracing that natural curiosity that humans have is really perhaps my favorite uh, of the many reasons for going to space. Now also understanding our place amongst everything, all right? We look up at the night sky and see a vast field of stars, perhaps more vast from, say, Moab than from downtown Denver, but we can see a lot out there. And knowing what we know, we know that we are on a small, insignificant speck orbiting a tiny, unremarkable star amongst the galaxy and universe. So understanding our place in it, how did Earth form, right? I mentioned the Grail spacecraft. That really gave us some great insight into the formational period of the Earth, uh, specifically the time frame known as the late heavy bombardment, when these planetesimals were uh, aggregating and building up these larger bodies. It's thought that a Earth protoplanet was impacted by something approximately the size of Mars, and the debris from that eventually coalesced into the moon and that's how the moon formed. And that theory was actually uh, validated. Now, they're still performing science on the, uh, the results of that, but preliminarily, that theory has been validated by the results of this GRAIL mission. So this is really something helping us understand initially how did the Earth form. Looking at Mars, it's another data point, right? We can study Earth all we want, but so to speak, in a vacuum, looking only at Earth as a single data point, we're left making assumptions. Expanding our understanding to other planets, be it Venus, Earth, oh, excuse me, Mars, Jupiter, etc. We gather more data from different initial conditions and start to validate our assumptions, validate our understandings of how things came to be. I'll give you one example of that. Mars and Venus are two extremes in this global warming greenhouse effect uh, that, that we can see. Mars has lost almost all of its atmosphere. At one point in time, it supported liquid water. Curiosity rover has proven that, that there was once lakes, rivers, flowing water, a water cycle on Mars. This is back in the four billion year ago time frame. Over those four billion years, it's been losing its atmosphere, losing its water, and now it is a cold, dry planet. Its atmosphere is 1% the density of Earth's. 
Nominally, it's 40 below zero uh, Fahrenheit or Celsius. Take your pick. Uh, <laughs> on, on a hot day, it might get to freezing. But it's uh, not a friendly place. That's primarily because it's lost its atmosphere. Now, the MAVEN spacecraft, one of those that we just launched about a month ago, is on its way to Mars now, and it's going to study the rate that Mars is losing its atmosphere. And from those present-day rates and understanding those rates and how they vary based on solar activity, we're going to be able to back uh, calculate what the Martian atmosphere used to be like and help us better understand the evolution of Mars. So that's one example on the spectrum. The other example on the spectrum is Venus. Now, Venus is roughly the same size as Earth. It's closer to the sun, of course. But just that distance from the sun, if you took Earth and put it there, wouldn't nearly account for the dramatic temperature change between Earth and Venus. The surface of Venus is uh, hellish. Right? It is 800 degrees. Lead is a liquid on the surface of Venus. We don't have the technology currently to set up a Venus rover that would last for anything longer than minutes. In fact, we've done some concepts on Venus surface probes, and really the assumption is they're not going to last much more than a few hours in that kind of an environment. We simply don't have the materials technology to allow electronics to survive at those temperatures and function. Uh, so you end up bringing a whole lot of climate control and cooling to allow your science experiments to work for that little amount of time that you have before they fry. So it's a very inhospitable planet, much more so than Mars, which is why we're not really that concerned about moving there as a species. Uh, you may have heard uh, some science fiction talk about living on Mars. It's much easier to do that than on Venus, and, and that's the, the primary reason why. So like I said, understanding Earth as a whole. Now, the other question is, how did life form? Right? Now, there are, of course, many theories, religious and scientific, on this concept uh, or this question. But generally, it's considered that, that life took hold on Earth billions of years ago. And in fact, Curiosity is starting to look for some of those building blocks of life on Mars to see if it may have been potentially habitable by microbial life. Uh, we certainly don't see any evidence of civilizations on Mars. Um, perhaps it's because due to the radiation environment currently on Mars, they've all moved underground. But we probably would have heard something or detected something at this point. So we are fairly certain, certain that Martians aren't crawling around and driving around in subterranean tunnels out there. But understanding how life formed and, more importantly, understanding if we're alone in the universe. Right? If we find examples even of microbial life elsewhere within the solar system, multiple data points in one solar system, that bodes very well for the possibility of other advanced forms of life elsewhere. Now, some of you may have heard of the Drake equation, which takes dozens of assumptions on probabilities of the probability of a star having a planet and the probability of that planet being within the habitable range from that star for water to be a liquid on the surface and the probability that it has the right chemical composition to have life forms and the right atmosphere and so on and so forth. And you get out to the probability that intelligent life has formed and the probability that it hasn't managed to kill itself due to misuse of technology. 
and the chances of it being there at this point in time. And you start to work out these numbers. And in one estimate, working out all those numbers from the billions and billions of stars out there, just in our galaxy, the estimates pointed you formerly to something in the range of 10,000 civilizations out there. Again, this is one estimate. This is certainly not science fact at this point. It's a scientific estimate. However, that number was based on an estimate of perhaps 10% of those stars out there having planets. Now, missions such as Kepler uh, and, and others have really helped us understand better the probability of stars having planets. And it turns out from those that we've looked at, the vast majority of those stars out there have planetary systems. Now, they've got all sorts of weird stuff like Jupiter-sized planets orbiting in one-day orbits around their stars where it's impossible for them to have formed there. And so you've got all these planetary migration physics that we're just starting to understand. So there's all sorts of other factors that now start to go into that equation. But in general... Uh, it, it bodes well for the possibility of us not being alone in the universe. And that's, I think, really a good thing. So we can also start to talk about understanding the current state of the Earth. And like I mentioned, that can include weather. That can include tectonic motion. We talked about GPS being able to measure these very, very small relative motions. So we've mapped all the tectonic plates on Earth and understand pretty well what they're doing, where they're going, and can start to understand and develop models for earthquakes, develop models for the formation of large storms, understand the impact of CO2 on climate. We can understand, measure, first of all, and then understand the effect of sea level rise. And it is rising. We've got solid measurements on that. We can even understand variations in water usage. The predecessor to the GRAIL mission, which studied the gravitational fields of the moon, was a mission called GRACE, and that used a single satellite and, excuse me, two satellites as well as uh, ground stations to measure in a similar way the gravitational field of Earth. Now, it didn't get as precise as GRAIL, principally because we've got an atmosphere, and you can't go in orbit around the Earth at an altitude of 10 miles. That's airplane territory. There's too much drag. So we had to be farther away. Therefore, our measurements were less precise. But despite that, we've got gravitational measurements of Earth that we can show the decrease in aquifer levels, the amount of water underground, to show that in the last 10 years, there's been a significant decrease in the amount of aquifer water in the Middle East due to long-term drought and uh, extra usage. So you can start to use that data and make some plans to mitigate some of those negative effects. You know, that's not an unlimited resource, and potentially that could be a new source of conflict rather than perhaps oil. So understanding that current state and starting to project that future state of Earth, as well, like I mentioned, understanding our neighborhood, our solar system neighborhood, our near-Earth neighborhood of stars and, and our entire galaxy, and like I mentioned, looking for neighbors, starting to identify stars that might have planets that might be suitable for life, and potentially long-term starting to identify places we might want to go and explore. So I'll talk a little bit more in a little bit, but you get the idea that this just isn't about 
gee whiz, what's over that corner? But it starts to impact our long-term species survival. And so, again, like I mentioned, I'm glad you guys are all here. It bodes well for us in the future. So, moving on a bit. Great societies, and we think back to the Egyptians, the Greeks, uh, the Renaissance-era societies, what do they do? They build monuments, right? We've got the pyramids. We've got gigantic cathedrals that when you think about it 900 years ago, it's inconceivable how they managed at that point in time to build some of these tremendous structures that are still standing today. Moai, these gigantic stone heads and, and bodies on Easter Island, another great example. They are objects that show future generations what this generation is capable of doing. All right? Now, I mentioned cathedrals and great pyramids and giant stone heads, but also on that list are international space stations. Right? These are the monuments of our generation. The International Space Station is the single most complex engineering feat ever performed. Each piece required millions of pieces coming together and doing so without fail to get that individual piece of that gigantic puzzle to orbit at the right place, at the right time, at the right speed, in the right direction so that they could integrate it. Developing that technology to where humans can live in that environment is really something special and, and something that obviously wouldn't have been perhaps necessary, but definitely wouldn't have been done without a space program. So those other monuments, cathedrals, etc., those were done with much more as a percentage of GDP than the space program currently uses. Now currently NASA is uh, bestowed with roughly 0.6% of the federal budget, 0.6%, all right? Not a whole lot in the big picture. We start talking about pie pieces, it shows up as a line. It's not a, not a slice, it's a line, all right? So when you start to think about the sticker shock of, oh man, the Curiosity rover, that cost $2 billion, that's a huge amount of money. Well, yes it is, for me, for you, for anybody, right? However, in terms of the big picture of what our society produces, it's a, a tiny, tiny bit. Now that 0.6% of the federal budget is only a fraction of the overall GDP, I should mention. So it's slivers, right? So much like those other monuments, hopefully this International Space Station, the Curiosity rover, everything else, those results are still going to be admired generations from now. Certainly the fact that we landed astronauts on the moon in the 1960s is admired by me currently. It's amazing that we went from nothing to there in the matter of roughly a decade. That's, that's tremendous. Now, obviously, we were operating at more than 0.6% of the federal budget at that point to do it. But really, big gains require some bigger payments. So, excuse me while I catch up with my chicken scratch. <laughs> One of those intangible benefits. Now, build a cathedral, build a pyramid, they're great to look at. But the intangibles of having built those are really the main benefit of doing that. So you start thinking about building these gigantic cathedrals. They couldn't just go down to Home Depot and pick up a kit and build it. They had to develop infrastructure 
to gather those materials. They had to develop civil engineering techniques, calculations, structural engineering, all this stuff. The technology to build those things at that point in time didn't exist, so they had to invent it. And when you start talking about that, that invention of that technology has all sorts of widespread benefits to future generations. Similarly, at those times, that's a great example of a society coming together and undertaking a project that some of them, at least, know that they won't live to see the end of. It's, at the civilization level, a delayed gratification and recognition that that is a virtue. Right? Similarly, some of us may not live to see humans set foot on Mars. I'd love to say everybody would. I'd love to say it's going to happen tomorrow, but it is my hope, but certainly no guarantee that I'm alive when it happens. And I say when, not if, because eventually I, I'm of the belief that we're going to be there. So we start talking about what are some of those benefits to a space program. Now, obviously, electronics, building them smaller, building them more efficient because we're obviously power limited out there uh, is, is a great benefit. And pretty much everybody has one of these in their pocket now. That's unlikely to have been in this form at this point in time without that imperative to miniaturize and make more power efficient. Now, specifically, high-density batteries. This thing will run all day without me plugging it in. That's incredible and certainly something that has been enabled by some of those technological advances when we start talking about uh, uh, space. Again, a lot of this stuff really results in how difficult it is to get into space. Per pound, it costs roughly $10,000. That's per pound to get something from the surface of the Earth into low Earth orbit. That's not even exit velocity. That's not to go to the moon. That's not to go to Mars. That's just to get it out there and ready to go somewhere. So it's not cheap. So there's real benefit to making things smaller and more efficient. Also, we start, start to talk about materials and advanced materials, advanced uh, you know, titanium that has trickled down into golf clubs, carbon fiber that has trickled down into my bicycle. These are cool things, right? Imaging. I've got a great digital camera that would not have been developed had it not been for space. It was very easy to grab film from the guy's camera and bring it to the lab. Not so easy to grab it from the satellite and take it to the lab. So they initially started looking at, all right, we've got cameras on board this satellite. We'll take a bunch of pictures. We'll put them in a capsule. We'll return it to Earth, drop it with a parachute. We'll go out with a Jeep to the middle of nowhere. We'll pick it up. We'll drive it over. And now we've got a picture of what that bad guy was doing three weeks ago. Well, what are they doing today? Uh, well, we need something better because we can't get the thing rolled and loaded and unloaded and so on. Well, what about if we were able to wirelessly transmit that image? Start talking about the first digital sensors are really a result of that need. And built not necessarily by NASA, but really by military spy satellites initially. So overall, right, civil engineering by the cathedrals, today, space, Everything we touch, whether it's a car with an onboard computer or a golf club or a bicycle, we're talking precision manufactured things. Things manufactured to tolerances that would be inconceivable 100 years ago, down to a 10,000th or a 100,000th of an inch in some precise applications. Now, that precision manufacturing is a direct result of the need for that precision manufacturing because space is hard. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But generally speaking, 
any space subcontractor, even the guys that are just making nuts and bolts, need to work to such a high standard that that kind of capability ends up trickling down to everyone. So, like I mentioned, that standard has influenced the national and global industrial base. And so from 50, 60 years ago till now, obviously we've seen tremendous improvements in technology across the board. And obviously a lot of those are enabled by those precision manufacturing techniques. Now we start talking about national security, right? The U.S. is leading in terms of space exploration, the Mars landing, for example. This was a global phenomenon. I was actually down at the Science Museum to watch the landing. This is a Sunday night at midnight, and there were 1,800 people there. They had every gathering space in the entire building, the IMAX theater, the planetarium, the atriums had theaters set up, and they were packed wall-to-wall with people watching this thing happen. And this wasn't the only place. Across the world, everybody was watching this. This is really a great example of a positive influence of the United States that the world can see. Now, obviously, there's value in that. But what's the value of being the leader in that kind of an endeavor? Now, if you're a technologically capable nation, you want to partner with the United States. You want to get involved in something that cool, that awe-inspiring, right? So having that strategy of doing things that makes others want to do them with us, granted our country uses that as potentially a parallel path to national security as the guns and bombs and things like that, but really philosophically that is much more powerful the opportunity to do something great is much more powerful than the threat of something bad happening. And so that's really another key player in the national security situation. America is an admired country because of that, among other things. So all right, (laughs) as I shuffle again, excuse me. All right, so in general, Space is hard. Paraphrasing my statement earlier uh, at Lookout Mountain, Mars is hard, right? In space, you live by excellence or you die from a lack of it, all right? We talk about that precision manufacturing. You have to be exact. You have to be precise. There's no margin for error. You can't launch something and then say, oh, shoot, we should have put this thing on there or we need to fix this thing. There's no going back. There's no going up and fixing it once it's beyond low Earth orbit. Now, we've made a few exceptions to that rule, Hubble being a very notable one. Uh, That's spectacular, by the way. Um, But in general, you need to do it right the first time or it doesn't work. This is one reason why two-thirds of all missions to Mars have failed, is because there's that amount of complexity and that little margin for error that everything has to be right. So the good news on that two-thirds statistic is in the last 10 or 15 years our percentage of success has been much higher than that what used to be hard is now what we'd call easy at least routine putting satellites into low earth orbit it's notable when something goes wrong rather than when something goes right in fact this may have been one of the circumstances that led to the demise of the shuttle program the public stopped caring because it was such a 
you know, broken record, oh, another shuttle launched, another shuttle launched, it got to be routine, and they only started paying attention when Challenger or Columbia happened. Now, obviously, things were still difficult, but the pattern of success had built up to the point that it became routine and, and interest may have been lost or at least waned a bit. So, like I said, what was hard was, is now easy, or routine anyway. What was formerly, formerly unimaginable is now possible. One example of this, I worked on a concept study that eventually turned into a proposal for a mission to the Saturn moon of Titan. Titan is small, but it's got a very dense atmosphere, so dense that it supports liquid methane on the surface of the moon that has a methane cycle similar to our water cycle. It's got rivers and lakes of methane. We were proposing sending a spacecraft out to Saturn and dropping off a probe, a boat that was going to drive around, float around on one of these lakes on Titan. And I was working on a propulsion system for that. Now that, again, 20 years ago is unimaginable. But using those stepping stones of things like the Cassini mission, which dropped a probe onto, uh, onto Titan and at least took a look at it, gives us that stepping stone, that record of success that we can build on to do the next little step. And those little steps over the years, over the decades, add up to significant achievements. In short, yesterday's science fiction is today's science fact. Right? We start talking about what else can we learn. We can start validating some of these theoretical physics things. There's a mission called Gravity Probe B, which confirmed Einstein's relativity theory of frame dragging, how space-time itself is twisted a bit by the rotation of mass such as the Earth. We measured that, which is incredible. I encourage you to go look that one up because the level of precision on that is so unimaginable that I still can't mentally comprehend it. So as we've looked to the heavens, we have recently confirmed within the last few years that 95% of what is out there is dark matter or dark energy, as we've tried to understand the motions of stars and galaxies. Now, we don't know what this dark energy or dark matter is. We can't see it, we can't touch it, but we know it's there. All right? We confirmed it only through space. Now, what's the value of this? Right? We can't even touch this stuff. We don't know what it is. Who cares? Well, once upon a time, there was a caveman that had never seen fire. And eventually, one of those cavemen discovered it. Certainly didn't understand it, but eventually they were able to put it to use. Stop running from it and start using it to cook food, to keep warm. The Greeks still didn't understand it. They thought it was an element. They were letting the fire element out of this wood element. Now we understand it, we can manipulate chemistry, we can do some incredible things with that in that field of science. Same story with electricity. We go from unaware to mastery. And of course, we're still getting better as far as quantum computing and things like that. You can use those same analogies across almost any field, from physics, gravity. Oh, hey, look, this feather and this bowling ball in a vacuum do fall at the same rate. That's an important discovery to now we know which direction to shoot something if we want it to get to Saturn in 15 years. So we're getting better. Similarly, thousands, hundreds, maybe even tens of years from now, we start to understand better this dark energy, dark matter thing. 
and potentially can start putting it to use. This could be huge. It could be just a curiosity, but it could be something significant on a civilizational level. It could enable us to go beyond our solar system. Now, talking about going beyond our solar system, again, getting back to that whole thing of it bodes well for the future of our species. Billions of years from now, roughly four, our sun will run out of hydrogen. All right, this isn't a concern for us or our kids or down the line, but eventually our sun will stop fusing hydrogen to helium. It will have fused all it has, and that nuclear pressure from its core will stop, and it will start to collapse inwards. And as it collapses, it starts getting hotter and higher pressure, and eventually those helium atoms start to fuse into heavier elements. At that point, the energy released from that will cause the sun to expand, certainly beyond the orbit of Venus and potentially out to the orbit of Earth. The calculations are still not precise enough to know exactly the extent of that. But regardless, the Earth will be incinerated. It will be no more. There is a shelf life on this planet, best if used before 4 billion years. So should we be lucky enough to survive that long, to utilize our natural resources in an intelligent way to where we can survive for billions of years, we will run out the clock, and we're going to have to move on. At that point, we may have the technology to potentially terraform Mars, make it more habitable. Uh, eventually, after it uses up all its helium, the sun will uh, go through some more, uh, we'll say, issues, and uh, it will ultimately turn into uh, what we would call a brown dwarf. Right? It's not going to be providing the energy that we will need, and we're going to need to find a new planet around a different star if the United, or excuse me, if, if humanity is to survive. And so we start talking about the space program. It is a survival imperative at the species level if we humans want to survive. Now, undoubtedly, evolution will have taken a little bit of a, a step forward as well. So the humans of four billion years from now may not be the same as us, but Hopefully, uh, you know, in, in terms of values, they uh, value the same kinds of things as we do. And so, anyway, in a rambling sense, that is an overall summary of why we might want to have a space program, why we might want to continue a space program, and perhaps even accelerate our efforts in terms of what we do with space. So uh, hopefully I didn't go too long. I certainly did, looking at the clock. <laughs> Sorry for all of you guys. You can watch the time going. I, uh, again, uh, warned Carl I may ramble a little bit. So uh, hopefully I didn't keep you too long. But I am more than happy to stay and answer questions as long as the beer doesn't run out. Uh, so thank you guys again. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. And... Um, Now we'll take a 10 or 15 minute break and then we'll have questions and answers if that works for everyone. All right. Bart, you're first. How is the commercialization of launch vehicles affected All right. The question there How has the commercialization of launch vehicles affected NASA? 
That's a good question. So right now, we're in a bit of a renaissance, we'll say, of space in that NASA is now starting to rely on commercial companies to do some of the, what I referred to earlier as easy or routine kinds of things, like getting to low Earth orbit. Right? The way that affects NASA is they, being of finite resources, can really start to focus more on the extraordinary. It takes a tremendous amount of resources, manpower, and infrastructure to maintain things like the space shuttle, to maintain things like uh, unmanned launch vehicles to get some of those uh, satellites and payloads into orbit. So if we start outsourcing some of those to companies that are trying to do it in a commercial sense, uh, not only trying to make money at it, but doing it in a more and more efficient way, NASA has now a little bit more uh, resource flexibility to start designing things that are out of the ordinary. Things like the next mission to the moon, perhaps a moon lander, uh, Altair, which is what that one is called. Things like more uh, interplanetary exploration things. So, so really it's addressing that need to do more with less. Obviously, every facet of the federal government is trying to do more with less. Uh, and that's one of the ways that we can uh, attempt to do that as a, a you know, NASA entity. Uh, in a sense, that's already been done um, with the EELV program. That was a Boeing and Lockheed Martin uh, dual path to space. The Atlas and Delta launch vehicles, those are now operated under a joint Boeing and Lockheed Martin company called United Launch Alliance. Uh, so it's not necessarily unprecedented that we're commercializing access to space, but what's new is that we're commercializing manned spaceflight, commercializing getting people into orbit, getting people to and from the space station. Uh, and as a spin-off of that, space tourism starts to have an opportunity. Things like Spaceship Two, uh, you know, taking people on pleasure rides to the edge of space. Uh, currently, uh, no one I know uh, has signed up for that. Uh, it's still pretty expensive, but that price is sure to come down. So uh, hopefully that answers, in, in a sense, your question of how that commercialization of space has impacted NASA. Uh, I saw a few more hands. Yeah. What is the scope of the NASA ambassador program that you're part of? So is, it, is it nationwide, global? Okay, yeah, sorry, I'll, I'll repeat that. So the, the question was, what is the scope of the NASA ambassador program that I'm a part of? Is it nationwide or does it affect other countries? Uh, to my knowledge, the NASA ambassador program, which is administered by JPL, uh, is something that is predominantly focused on outreach within the United States and its territories. So it's not only within the 50 states, but also Puerto Rico, Guam, et cetera. There are roughly 1,100 ambassadors currently. Uh, what that does basically with those 1,100 people, they provide some behind-the-scenes insight into some of the things that they might not otherwise have access to. Discussions with principal investigators of a bunch of different science missions, for example. They are then tasked with going out to the public, uh, principally to schools and other places that they can inspire future engineers to get into this kind of field. 
one of those future engineers is sitting in this room, Aiden over here. Hopefully, I, sorry to call you out, but I'm proud to call you out. Aiden's into robotics. He's been to Lookout Mountain at least once, I think more than once. Very interested in space, and, and really that's the kind of outreach that the Ambassador Program is really targeted at. In addition, of course, it's targeted at the general public and helping them understand and appreciate all the different facets of what NASA is all about. And from that, I tend to add space program in general, since the NASA Ambassador Program isn't necessarily interested in pumping up things like GPS and so on, but uh, it all plays together in, in the same big picture. And so I, uh, I tend to take what I get from the Ambassador Program, what I've gotten from my uh, experience at Lockheed Martin, and uh, what I've researched elsewhere, and try to meld those into the message that I tend to bring to, uh, to people who come out to some of my speeches here. So hopefully that answers your question. All right. Who's next? There's one. Yeah. Uh, could, could you speak to the tyranny of subcontracting? Ha, ha, ha. And I'll paraphrase it a little bit. My, my son was a, with the GAO and watched what happened as big companies uh, made their bucks and walked away from the subcontractors at times. And maybe the Dreamliner is an example of just-in-time technology all right, so speaking to the tyranny of subcontractors, uh, we're jumping topics a bit to a macroeconomic kind of a question here, but that's okay. <laughs> so as it turns out, I also happened to work on the Dreamliner in propulsion integration before I came to Lockheed Martin, back when it was called the 7E7 rather than the 787. Uh, but I work uh, a lot with subcontractors uh, that, that do various components, propulsion components. Lockheed Martin themselves is a subcontractor to the government. So there's several levels of those. You know, we, we say, all right, NASA does this mission, and they're going to subcontract out the spacecraft, the mission operations, and everything else to Lockheed Martin, and they are responsible for science targeting. And so then Lockheed Martin is now responsible for designing and building and testing and flying the spacecraft, right? And then reporting science to NASA. Well, they do all of those things, and they say, all right, we need all these pieces. Well, we don't currently make rocket engines ourselves. And this is way down in the noise. You know, they go and break it up into subsystems. But then they say, hey, Adam, we need this rocket engine or this pyro valve or this filter or this or that or whatever. We, Lockheed Martin, do the analysis system design on the propulsion system and then go and buy those components from various companies, put them together in a hopefully intelligent way so that they work, and then trickle that up, up to the subsystem level, up to the system level, ultimately deliver a vehicle that works, provide science data, and then send that to our customer, NASA, or whoever else is buying that service from us. So there's a lot of layers here. And... The question talked about what about those contractors that make their money and walk, right? And this is really perhaps a symptom of the type of contract. So now we're getting into business a little bit in addition to macroeconomics. But the type of contract that had frequently been employed 
was what they considered a cost plus contract, a cost plus incentive fee contract. So all your costs are covered. We're going to pay you to do this. And if it works, we're going to give you this fee as well. Now that is essentially necessary for anybody to sign up to something that's never been done before. When we start talking about we want you to do X, Y, Z, and we have experience up to L and M, there's some leaps there. There's some development work there. There's a lot of unknowns. And so because of some of those unknowns, to get potential help, subcontractor help, they needed to use those cost plus structures of contracts. At this point, we've started making some of those things routine, started understanding things better, developed our technology, developed our modeling a little bit more. We can really do a lot more. And we can do so with more confidence. And so now what you've seen over the last 10 or more years is a transition to fixed price contracts where company, you are on the hook to give us this. You get this much money. And if it costs you more than that, that's tough luck for you. You need to give us this. And so you, you've seen this transition from cost plus contracts when we've been in that technology maturation phase to having mature technology and being in this uh, fixed price contract environment. That's actually made it quite difficult for companies to bid on some of these things because even though the technology exists, in many cases, the science results, the documentation, the verification processes and things like that are moving targets. And so there's still a lot of risk, but a lot of that risk has now been transferred to the subcontractors. And uh, so you've got kind of a different playing field. And unfortunately, as a result of that, you don't go into aerospace to get rich because we're basically now limited, and federally limited in terms of the amount of profit that we can make. Uh, at, at a level that's much lower than something like Apple, which might sell you something that costs them $200 for $600, uh, we might be limited to selling it to you for $230. So it's not necessarily um, subcontractors out to rip off the government, although I won't argue that that hasn't happened in the past. I'm sure it has somewhere and in probably many cases. Uh, but at this point, we've gotten past that learning curve uh, quite a bit, which has enabled us to go into more of a fixed price contracting kind of a thing for some of those more routine tasks, which, again, kind of stems into the commercialization of space, where we can say, all right, SpaceX or whoever else, we are paying you to get three astronauts to the space station. Do it. And by the way, do it safe. Don't kill them. We kind of need those guys alive. So... <laughs> There's always, that brings up another topic, there's always risk with space, and all the astronauts know it. The public, on the other hand, has kind of a, a I don't know if the word schizophrenic, but they've got much more of a low risk tolerance as far as astronaut safety than the astronauts have. Obviously, they want to come home safe at the end of the day. But at the same time, they're sitting on a million pounds of explosive that's going to go off in a controlled environment that's going to shoot them up instead of all over the place. And so there is some element of risk when you start talking about this amount of chemical energy getting them into orbit. So really, we start talking about that, that risk tolerance thing as well, and that's a whole other topic. So really an interesting question. I, it, very good one. I hadn't heard that one before. Uh, let's see, over here. Thank you. Um, you made a very compelling argument for unmanned space, but I didn't feel, and I made 
I'm biased. I didn't feel there was a very good, compelling argument for manned space flight at this time. I mean, you know, if the solar system is only so big, Mars is probably a definition with the radiation and probably a one-way trip, realistically. Um, why do we still have manned space when most of your argument was satellites, GPS, all that research in which there was unmanned space? Did everybody hear that? That's going to be tough for me to repeat. <laughs> the, the general gist of that is there's a lot of my argument for why space that revolves around the unmanned aspect of things. And not as much for uh, manned space flight at this point in time. And that's a very good point. Right now, we're still learning. We're still developing our technology of how do we get from A to B? Getting the Curiosity rover down to Mars, getting a 2,000-pound item down to Mars, that's the biggest thing we've ever successfully landed on that planet by a long shot. And that's still only a small fraction of what we would need to land on Mars if we were to do a manned mission there. So you're absolutely right. In general, however, it's got to be concurrent. If we go and do only manned missions without the unmanned aspect of things, obviously we miss out on all those benefits of the unmanned space program. But we also miss out on all the learning opportunities of that unmanned program. We never develop that sky crane technology at that 2,000 pound rover down to the ground, which unlike the airbags used for the original Mars rovers, the sky crane technology is scalable so we can land larger, heavier habitats on Mars if we want to go and land manned missions there. So we can't do manned only, but more to your point, what if we did unmanned only? Well, unmanned only, that's a great way, in fact, probably the best way to get great science knowledge. So from a science standpoint alone, on what's out there, you're absolutely right. But it doesn't necessarily address some of the other aspects of why space. Uh, from a species survival standpoint in particular. So understanding mankind's reaction to radiation environments, how to mitigate those in space, how to survive in a zero-G environment. There are some things that robots still can't do. Um, main proponents, or the main reason uh, that, that proponents of manned Mars missions like to point out is you know, we can do a whole lot more in a whole lot less time if we have a person there doing geology on Mars, searching for signs of life on Mars than if we do it robotically. Robotic exploration is very slow and methodical. There's a lot of uh, one-way light time, you're power limited, and the round-trip light time from getting input from Mars, decide what to do with it, and send it back is at minimum 16 minutes if you have instant reaction time on Earth and you are in conjunction. If you're at opposition, Earth on one side of the sun, Mars at the other, round trip is almost an hour. Light time, radio time to get there. So taking that delay out of the loop and having a decision maker there and saying, oh, that's interesting, I'm going to tap it, rather than, oh, I'm going to send a picture, they're going to decide that's interesting, they're going to go and then say, we're going to develop commands to drive the drill over there and then pull that out, that's a day. So we can do a whole lot more, more efficiently by that argument with someone there in person starting to talk about planetary survival, right? What do we need to do to protect us from that, say, 300-meter diameter asteroid?
that we calculate is going to hit Earth in 20 years on its current trajectory. We need to alter that somehow. And robotically, that may be perfectly possible, but it may turn out that for whatever reason with the... Um, with the, uh, <laughs> with the composition of, of, of whatever asteroid might be in question. <laughs> the composition of whatever asteroid might be in question. We might need people there to make real-time decisions. Um, hate to bring Hollywood into the picture, but uh, what was it? Arma Armageddon and Bruce Willis or Deep Impact? Uh, those kinds of missions are the kind that, that realistically could save the planet. And having that capability might end up uh, coming in handy someday. Certainly, like, uh, like I mentioned, and, and from the sounds of it, like you understand, long term, we're going to need those manned missions. But in the near term, it's, it's really something of, of expanding mankind's footprint, expanding mankind's sphere of influence outwards. And that's, uh, that's something that doesn't necessarily resonate 100% of the time. And to be honest, I am uh, more a proponent of the unmanned science missions than I am for the manned things because I, th I think you're, uh, you're on the side that I come down with. It costs 10 times as much to do a manned mission and you get more quicker with the unmanned science missions. But there are those intangible benefits like I mentioned as well. And uh, it's a good reason to continue both as far as parallel paths go. Does that answer your question? All right. Thanks. Just to shift a little bit. Uh-oh. Where are we going next? <laughs> just how far away from uh, warp speed are we? Um, rounding uh, all the way. <laughs> uh, right, right. Real quick, um, the question... The question is, how far away are we from warp speed? Uh, right now, all our propulsion systems that we have, with the exception of a few exotic in-development kinds of things, like solar sails, utilize matter that we're shooting off the back of the satellite or rocket or whatever to be pushed in the opposite direction. So it's a momentum transfer kind of a thing or a conservation of momentum. You shoot a little bit really fast that way, you go slower that way, right? So mostly we're using chemical energy, uh, rockets that burn some stuff and shoot the hot stuff out the back end. Some of the more advanced things, we're using electric means of accelerating that mass out the back, things like ion engines that are much more efficient per pound of propellant, but we're still using propellants. Warp speed in general relies on the idea of warping the gravitational field around where you are so that you're accelerating without stuffing things out the back. Unlike impulse power, which is shooting stuff out the back, according to the Star Trek guys, which I happen to like, so I am a Trekkie, so that's, that's totally fine with me. Um, so uh, until we learn to manipulate gravity, warp gravity, that's where the warp comes from there, until we learn to do that, we are... Uh, really stuck in the, in the mode of uh, utilizing matter to, uh, to gain, gain velocity. So we're all the way out. <laughs> Sorry, I mean, just a quick one. Are there people looking at that? Absolutely. Right. Yep, yep. All right. Question back here. Absolutely. So the, the question is, 
not necessarily worrying so much about the overall shelf life of the Earth of roughly four billion years, B with a or billion with a B, right? Um, but rather, what are we doing? What are we doing to research and understand and potentially mitigate climate change? And if NASA has any missions for that? And the answer is yes, we've got a lot. We've got a lot of Earth observation satellites, dozens in fact, that are looking at things like sea level rise and concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and things like that, and monitoring that at a global level. Uh, so we're, we're really looking at that, and in fact, NASA is one of the primary sources of all that scientific data that goes into the climate change uh, studies. As far as mitigation, there's been some concepts discussed uh, on, on what we might be able to do. Um, one of those concepts that I've seen papers on is launching a bunch of small reflectors into the Earth-Sun Lagrange point, a gravitationally stable area, and basically putting up a partial shield in between the Earth and the Sun to reflect away some of the incident sunlight and kind of put some sunglasses on the entire planet. Of course, we start talking about that, and that could have some big impacts that we may not fully understand. Um, plants, it turns out, like sunlight. Um, so we... Uh, <laughs> We want to study that a lot more before we go and commit to it. That would be more of a drastic kind of a change. But yeah, they are, uh, they are looking at it both in terms of monitoring and in terms of mitigation. I have another thing. Two more questions. Uh, right now, okay, the question is what plans are there for future missions to Mars? Uh, currently, those are all in a, a conceptual kind of a stage. First of all, we don't have the funding committed to it, so we can't really go and get into it in a, a big way as far as design. So right now we've only looked at orbital mechanics, payload mass to orbit, things like that. What is possible? Uh, one of the things that we've started to put funding towards is this SLS, this giant launch vehicle, bigger than the Saturn V, that's built to put roughly 100 metric tons into orbit. That's the kind of launch capability that we would need to launch a large-scale mission, something that can support humans if we go all the way to Mars. Mars, Because, as has been mentioned, the environment is very difficult. We need radiation shielding. We need all sorts of climate control, food for that long a mission. There's a lot of stuff that would go into it, and all that stuff adds mass. So we're starting to talk about what the launch vehicle might look like for something if we're going to mount a mission to Mars on only a handful of launches rather than hundreds. We could do it right now with hundreds. We could build another space station and then build another Earth departure stage and launch the whole works out to Mars, but that would rely on hundreds of launches instead of half a dozen, and that starts to get into economies of scale of what really makes sense. So at this point, it's only conceptual. However, some targets from politicians have been, you know, 2030s kind of time frame. But of course, nothing happens without money. <laughs> Okay, good question. So the, the question was as far, uh, on the topic of units of measurement. Um, now in plates, I, I think I mentioned it in millimeters per year. Uh, but at, at any rate, they're you know, fractions of inches, ten thousandth of an inch, hundred thousandth of an inch. Units of measure that we use kind of depends. Uh, in fact, it's a bit of a... Um, <laughs> The, the comment was embarrassment, or didn't they crash one of the missions? And in fact, they did. Um, no, that was that we still use. ah, the 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 embarrassment is that we still use it. 
that, that could be argued as well. We're, we're not the only one. There are one or two other countries that use that. Um, England not being among them, or the UK not being among them. Uh, so, so yes, uh, we do frequently use inches as a, a unit of length, especially when it comes to detail parts, uh, only because most of our industrial base is in the United States, and we are still interfacing with them as a, uh, a United States contract. Those outside of the U.S., of course, are using metric. If you do all your conversions right, everything's A-OK. -okay. However, as was alluded to, those conversions aren't always done right. And in fact, it wasn't so much a conversion thing that caused the problem with, uh, let's see, was that MCO, Mars Climate Orbiter? Uh, we basically missed the planet. Uh, it turns out that when you go and launch a spacecraft, Carl, I'm going to get into a little bit of a longer explanation since this is my last chance with the mic. <laughs> uh, when you go to Mars, you don't shoot like a bullet from a gun and then leave it be for seven months. You actually do a number of trajectory correction maneuvers. You go in the right path at right down the line, but because you need to be so precise, you need to measure weeks later and make sure you're exactly on the line and adjust your trajectory. Months later, you check again to make sure that you were right on because small errors that may not even be measurable or controllable at point A propagate to big differences at point B. So you do a handful of these TCMs on the way to another planet, sometimes dozens of them depending on your interplanetary trajectory. So they start to model these and calculate these TCMs using a number of smaller calculations, small forces files, things like that, trying to estimate everything. And that's down to the force from solar pressure on the spacecraft. That's the smallest one that I might know of, right? That is the change in momentum from bouncing a photon off of the thing, right? That's not much. Now, we calculated that in, in great precision for GRAIL, but it's also calculated over an entire spacecraft and factored into some of these TCMs. So you end up with, like I mentioned earlier, subcontractors talking to contractors, and sometimes in addition to science, some of these NASA uh, centers do some of the trajectory design. And so they say, all right, we're going here, we need this TCM, and you know, contractor, in this case Lockheed Martin, go do it. And so they're communicating back and forth at a very technical level with files simply of numbers in many cases. And in the case of MCO, one group was working in one system of units, the other working in another, and each assumed the other one was working in those units. So we used both, and in the case of MCO, that was the problem. Had we been consistent, everything would have been okay. So that miscommunication was discovered before uh, we passed the planet. It wasn't a surprise. However, at that point, it was too late to do anything about it. And so that was the cause of one of those two-thirds of all Mars failures was that difference in units, uh, that uh, miscommunication. Yeah, so... Which is the right one, yeah. So, so the right answer is use both, be very clear about which is which, and uh, everybody can be happy, but the files get twice as big. <laughs> so, so at any rate, uh, 
thank you again for, uh, for you all coming. I really appreciate the interest, and I'm happy to stick around longer if you have any more questions. So. All right. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming out to make this a special evening. And one more round of applause for Adam Pender, a great presentation. Thank you so much.